I'm Daniel Bass, manager of the South Asia program at Cornell University. And I'm Shavin Senevaratna, graduate student in architecture at Cornell and student worker at South Asia program. You're listening to the Next Monsoon podcast, where we examine how art and culture can help us navigate the uncertain future. This podcast is part of a bigger project in the South Asia program at Cornell University. We'll be interviewing scholars from around the world to help us understand how people and artists face climate change. In today's episode, we're headed to the frontier, examining deltas, borders, and climate frontiers in South Asia. Jason Kahns is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin. His research and teaching focuses on a range of issues, including climate security, disputed territory along the India-Bangladesh borders, political ecology, social theory, and agrarian change in South Asia. His first book is Sensitive Space, Fragmented Territory at the India-Bangladesh Border, and he is co-editor of Frontier Assemblages, the Emergent Politics of Resource Frontiers in Asia. Welcome, Jason, to the next monsoon. Hi, hi folks. Thanks for having me on. So we want to begin with um, a question that we ask all our guests, which is, what is your first thought when you hear the word monsoon? I suppose rain is my first thought when I hear the word monsoon. I think of uh, the monsoon season, of the feeling of never really quite being dry, that sort of vague sense of the vague odor of mildew that kind of hangs over over everything, all of my clothes. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's the sort of most immediate memory thought that springs to mind. Um, and then beyond that, I guess my I go to the, the more classic understanding of the monsoon as um, this sort of vast climb network that moves through South Asia, um, ideally, you know, hopefully once a year and um, transfers water uh, from various water sources, uh, various ocean sources, and makes things like agriculture happen and rivers flow and all of that good stuff. So what inspired you to be part of this project on the next monsoon? Well, um, I was invited to be part of the project in part because I am currently working in um, the Southwest Delta region of Bangladesh. And the research that I've been doing there focuses both on the actual material impacts that climate change have in the Delta today, but also imaginations of what the future will look like. And, and in fact, how those imaginations of the future are shaping politics um, and ecology in the Delta in the present. So the imagination of transformations related to the monsoon um, in the face of climate change are very much part of some of the ways that people are thinking about the future there. Uh, and I, my, a, a big focus of the work that I do there is in the Shundarbans, the world's largest remaining mangrove forest. Um, and of course, the fate of the mangroves is in some sense quite tied to the monsoon. Mm-hmm. And I mean, with that, how do you think the focus on cultural responses towards climate change provide a different understanding than scientific analysis? I think that a focus on the ways that people experience and understand things like uh, transformation and transformations in climb and weather shifts in patterns of rainfall are absolutely crucial to pair with other kinds of understandings of climate transformation. Without that, we end up with explanations which tend to imagine climate change as these abstracted things which are which happen to places as opposed to things which emerge out of places. So 
you received a PhD in development sociology here at Cornell. Uh, you're currently teaching in an anthropology department at Texas. But how do you identify yourself and how do you see your training different from your current position? That's a, an interesting question. When I was at Cornell, uh, the much of the training that happens, and I think still happens at Cornell, is takes interdisciplinarity seriously mm -hmm. in a way which I think is unfortunately still rare um, in, and not not necessarily the norm. I'm not sure it's really the norm where I teach now. I think that that's a really important and useful way of learning uh, and of thinking about things like place, about thinking about things like South Asia. I think confining ourselves within narrow disciplines often leads to problematic thinking and a lot of reinvention of wheels mm -hmm. and failures to learn from our colleagues around us. I, I often say that I think one of the least interesting questions one can ask intellectually is, is, is something sociological enough? Is it anthropological <laughs> enough? I don't really think that those are frameworks that I find all that helpful for thinking about the world mm -hmm. around us. So how has that interdisciplinary background of yours shaped your view on climate change? To think about climate change today from the standpoint of a singular discipline really doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that it, thinking and tackling a question like what is the monsoon or what will the next monsoon look like really requires familiarity with historical methods, um, at least some basic understanding of how the science is framed. It's absolutely crucial to have a much broader dialogue that involves uh, the humanities, the social sciences, and the sciences. And I think that's been one of the things that's been really lovely about this project so far is the opportunity. I mean, it's primarily um, we're mostly humanists who are part of this project and engaging with the ways that we all think about this is in some sense uh, a, a kind of a lovely departure from a narrow social science thinking about this and also from the scientific framing that I, I tend to read a lot of when I'm trying to understand what's happening in the Bengal Delta. Yeah. Getting to some of your uh, research in the Bengal Delta, you've done, you've done research on topics of borders and securities and agrarian landscapes and deltas, coastal communities. And uh, for our listeners, how would you describe frontier landscapes and what makes something a frontier? That's a great question. I mean, it's, it's one that's hard to answer in part because frontier is probably one of the most overdetermined <laughs> concepts mm -hmm. out there. I mean, it, it's one of those things that, that has so many meanings. It's often, you know, sometimes my colleagues and I question whether it's a, a useful mm -hmm. analytic concept to start with. I tend to look at frontiers as imaginative processes. What happens in a frontier space is that you have a lot of different kind of visions and imaginations of what sorts of possibility are in such zones that then are transformed into material practices. So um, one example of that is frontiers are often talked about and imagined as these lawless zones. And sometimes, mm -hmm. in fact, they are. They often are places that tend to be difficult to manage and patrol and sort of classic top down forms of policing or you know, other kinds of technologies that state forces use to, to order space. But I think as important as that reality is the sort of imagination of these zones as places where particular kinds of opportunities are possible in part because it's imagined that the state doesn't have a strong presence there. Um, and so I think that often becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that in a lot of, a lot of instances, the imagination of a space as lawless precedes its lawlessness okay. um, as opposed to the other way around. 
So uh, a lot of the work that I and others have done around frontiers has been thinking specifically about resource frontiers, which is a concept that has been kicking around in political ecology for quite a long time um, and is, uh, at least until more recently, has typically been thought of as kind of a political economy process, right? Mm -hmm. Frontiers are this necessary mechanism within capitalism that allows for um, overaccumulation. It's a place where new capital can go and new kinds of resources can be extracted and incorporated, mm -hmm. whether that be land or oil or palm oil or lumber or, or what have you. So what would be an example of a resource frontier in Bangladesh? I've been thinking about the entire Delta zone as a particular kind of resource, resource frontier that I've been calling a climate mm -hmm. frontier. The way I define that is that in the last decade or so, the imminent presence of climate change, along with a whole host of new projects that have come in to try and manage its effects, have become sort of a dominant force that reshapes and reorganizes other forms of accumulation, other forms of resource extraction, and a whole broad suite of things related to life in these zones, both human and non-human. So the argument that I've been trying to make is that if we understand this space as this thing I'm calling a climate frontier, then that doesn't mean that we can ignore the kinds of historical processes that have allowed for environmental transformation in the Delta. For example, the rise of export-oriented brackish water shrimp aquaculture, or the long history of building embankments um, in islands in the Delta. But rather, it's that debates that happen around those things are organized in relation to conversations about climate change. So climate becomes this kind of organizing pattern which transforms and reconfigures other processes of extraction and accumulation that are happening in this space. I guess with the shaping of the frontier landscapes, there are just many factors that come into play. But what do you think is one factor that creates most stress in these landscapes? I think it's difficult to answer that question in the singular. A lot of what I've been trying to show in my work is that um, there are lots of singular factors that impact people's lives. But what's really interesting about thinking about the climate frontier is the possibility of understanding the interconnection between some of these different processes. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a, a concrete example. In my work in the Delta, I spent a lot of time talking to fishermen who work in the Shunderbans. And when I began this research, I was pretty, what's the right word? I expected to hear a lot of people complaining about government policies regulating access to the Shunderbans because there's been a huge amount of investment in conservation measures within the, the Delta. And that's involved things like restricting the number of fishing permits that are provided. Uh, closing access to fishing in the Shunderbans for certain months of the year to allow for the spawning of marine life. But what people really wanted to talk about was this massive explosion of banditry within the Shunderbans, which had led to uh, a huge spike in people being kidnapped off of their boats and held for ransom. <laughs> and it turns out what was behind that process were a set of different kinds of transformations in a, a period following um, a wave of terrorist attacks in Bangladesh, several paramilitary units within the state had been empowered to essentially do new kinds of policing inside of the Shunderbans. Um, so, um, and alongside of that, there was this new money coming in from international organizations 
to fund forest department to create these kind of, they call them smart teams. They're basically patrol units that move in fast moving motorboats and, and do their own kind of patrolling. The emergence of these new paramilitary groups is that it broke up those larger territorial units. So they didn't actually reduce the number of <laughs> bandits that were in the Schunderbunds. They just made it so that if you were a fisherman, you could no longer actually predict where and whose territory you were, you were working in. How have the characteristics of frontiers in ways evolved in relation to the climate crisis? The Schunderbunds itself has been conceived of as a frontier for a very, very long time. But the dynamics of those frontiers are always in flux and always shifting. Right? So uh, there's a, a real sense right now in the Delta, um, or at least I read it this way, that part of what makes the present really difficult to navigate for people is that there are so many different imaginations of what the future might look like that are crowding into the Delta space at once. You have international organizations pouring huge amounts of money into conservation efforts, that you have lots of people talking about what the effects of climate change will be for people who live in the Delta. You also have a huge amount of projects that are crowding into the Bengal Delta um, that imagine the Delta as this sort of engine for industrial growth for Bangladesh. So, I mean, this particular frontier, I think, is quite confused and quite laden with these different kinds of imaginations. So what do you consider to be a sensitive space? And how is this concept useful for your research? I haven't really been using that concept as much in my current research. My, my first projects looked at a series of enclaves um, along the northern part of the India-Bangladesh border that were literally pieces of India inside of Bangladesh and vice versa. And the way that they'd been written about a lot was that like the, the weird fact of their geography was what made these zones problematic, mm -hmm. made them havens for bandits and things like that, people trying to evade the law. But what I found doing ethnography there, that in some sense, it was the other way around, that it was the imagination of these things as problematic that made them problematic, right? And, mm -hmm. and so I had thought about the notion of sensitive space as a way to try and understand that, because people would use that term when they talked to, when, when they talked to me about them. If I was in an archive and asking for documents about, um, about these enclaves, it was like, people say, well, you know, you're having a difficult time accessing information about these things because they're really sensitive spaces. And after hearing this for about six months, I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, and I sort of, I, I started to think of it as a way to understand the way these things were treated from afar and um, and also approximately as these sort of as zones that were problematic because it was determined that they were problematic, right? Like not because mm -hmm. of anything particular about them. There's also this other term that you use in your research, the word choke points, and I'm curious about how you define this term. So choke points is a concept that uh, a collective of us had started to think through. I mean, I think we we sort of imagine it in some ways in sort of kind of standard logistical terms, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, choke points are often talked about um, as these places where lots of things kind of get funneled into and then funneled back out, that like they mm -hmm. have to move through and there's logistical complications with moving through those spaces. 
ethnographically, what we were interested in and thinking about choke points is what does sociality look like inside of these zones? Others in the project thought about spaces like Siliguri in South Asia, right? The chicken neck where, which is this kind of narrow strip of land, this highly sensitive space. We thought about tunnels that connect uh, nation states like Georgia and Russia. And I started thinking about the, the Delta as an interesting choke point in the sense that I was just talking about it as. What I found to be interesting there is the fact that there were all these imaginations about what the future was going to look like um, that were crowding into the present. So um, I was thinking of the Delta as a choke point of future possibility, where you know, on the one hand, you have sort of the imagination of the Delta as this imminent wasteland, mm-hmm. but also the Delta as a space, an arm for industrial development. In my own attempt, just to understand how people thought about all of these things, which seems fundamentally incommensurate to me in the same place, like to, to ask, um, okay, if you are, say, someone involved in local politics, um, living in the Delta space, and it's your job to, on the one hand, think about climate change and its impacts on mm-hmm. people who are your constituents, and on the other, to think about the imperatives uh, for conservation that are flowing in from USAID, and also facilitate the development of ports to make the space work um, as an economic resource. How do you right. manage to think through all of those things? So I, I think that it, choke points are useful um, in thinking that question. So how do you compare like frontiers and choke points? Because choke points seem to be about constraints and frontiers are about a lack of constraints. Like how can one place be both a frontier and a choke point? That's an interesting question. I guess I hadn't really thought of them as antithetical in that sense. Yeah. So I, I think that they're not as antithetical as they might initially seem. I think a lot okay. of the sort of the politics of frontiers is about navigating things that, that cause constraint um, and thinking beyond yeah. that. They are absolutely about possibility and openness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in many ways, um, you know, Mongla Port is like a frontier boomtown. It's like a sort yeah. of a classic almost like textbook definition of what a, of what a frontier boom town looks like, but it is absolutely a choke point, right? I mean, yeah. it is, um, it's a choke point in sort of a kind of a classic sense. It sits on this river. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at a point where the depth of the river starts to decrease. So you have this big issue of navigating, managing silt and figuring out how do you get, um, big ships to a port, which is not a deep water port. Um, but it's so I, I think that these things often exist in similar spaces, even though they do. I think it's an interesting point to think of them as conceptually different, like the idea of um, unlimited freedom and possibility with, with constraint. I was also curious about when you talked about these imaginative um, solutions or just acts that take place in frontiers. Um, are they in ways reimagining the quality of life in a positive sense? That's a great question. I, I don't think that there's a singular answer to that either, because there are so many different imaginations of what the future is and, and will be. I mean, I think one of those imaginations is absolutely, um, and I, I completely agree with uh, Kasha Paprocki's analysis here, um, sort of imagines these spaces as um, zones of opportunity in part because um, they are framed as as imminent dystopias, right? And so depeasantization and the reimagination of what you can do with land, sort of the infinite expansion of, of land um, as a uh, resource for producing export-oriented products 
at the expense of agriculture and other kinds of social life. Um, I think absolutely that's happening. And, and that's, that's a very, that's a really negative view of life. I mean, I think most mm -hmm. of the people that I talk to who live in the Delta know that the opportunities that await them if they were to pick up, say, and move to Dhaka to become a rickshaw puller are like that they're facing a decline in the quality of life and that they don't really want to be ushered off of their land to uncertain futures. But that's only one imagination of what the future will hold, right? So, I mean, and, and only one implication for what life looks like there. I mean, I think, and I, I take people at their word in saying this, I think a lot of the folks who are involved in the development of Mangla Port, imagine Mangla rightly or wrongly as the space that can absorb climate displacement and provide good employment opportunities and a higher quality of life for people right i mean there's this new um, export processing zone which is developing alongside of the expansion of the port um, and i think you know whether they're right or, or wrong i think all, lots of folks are saying this is employment for people who would otherwise have employment and it's a, a gateway to a, um, a higher income life and there are lots of challenges facing that access to fresh water um, the decline of the Shunderbans with the sort of power plant and so on and so forth but um, but I think it's worth considering that as you know I, I don't think that's necessary a duplicitous imagination I think people like are serious about that and then I think that there are other kinds of futures that peasants who are living in the delta are also actively thinking about which don't I'm not sure that they imagine them as, a, as necessarily an improvement um, in their life, but rather as ways of maintaining it. Right? I mean, if you talk to people, people are experimenting all the time with changes in the ways that they do things that don't necessarily register on the same kind of temporal frames that discussions of climate change take place. Right. Those are often yeah. framed in like 10, 20, 50, 100 years. Whereas like, you know, peasants are thinking like, what do I need to do to make sure that I've got water to irrigate my crops during the dry season next mm -hmm. year? Right? And, and I think people are always experimenting with that, right? And like, like it's, it's a very generative process of thinking through these things. And um, one of the questions that I really like to ask people, especially if I'm talking to a group of folks as opposed to individually is like, what they think the government should do in terms of policies um, to sort of make it better for them to have livelihoods in the Delta. And there are really creative thoughts and, and ideas there. I mean, like often I hear things like, oh, well, you know, if the government only banned shrimp aquaculture within a certain amount of distance from the Shunderbonds, then we could go back to rice farming. We wouldn't have to, you know, go and fish in the Shunderbonds illegally and, and so on and so forth. So I think that there's a bunch of imaginations I think that they all benefit people in different ways and benefit different people. Like obviously, I mean, I think that I think that um, the analysis of the uh, of the sort of threatening dystopia is. I, I think that that genuinely does not really benefit um, people who are being displaced from their land. Not surprisingly, um, and I also think that the sort of visions of like energy security and industrial development, I think that's very much an open question. I mean, history, does it, it's not like a particularly like, what's the right way to say this? Um, history hasn't necessarily full of examples of that looking like a good lifestyle um, or a sustainable lifestyle for folks. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this is part of what makes it such an interesting place is that there's just this insanely complicated and robust imagination of what's unfolding um and often it feels very dark right i mean a lot of those visions are are quite pessimistic but not all of them um and 
some of them are things that I'm excited about and can kind of, you know, um, get behind, I guess. With all of that in mind, what are some of your goals for the next Monsoon project? So for the project as a whole, what's really exciting is that not only does it bring perspectives um, about similar kinds of changes from across the region, but it has, uh, to my mind, I think the opportunity to just open up a different set of questions than I think are typically being asked when people are thinking about um, the future of climate change, the future mm -hmm. of the monsoon and cultural production in relation to it in South Asia. So I guess my personal goals uh, from the next monsoon project are um, maybe selfish. I, I, <laughs> I'm really excited to learn from that and to think about those things in relation to the problems that I encounter in my research on a daily basis. And I think that there's tremendous potential to think about a lot of questions that I know all of us are grappling with every mm -hmm. day from questions about scale to questions about transformation to questions about um, how environmental change shapes the ways that people live and work and produce uh, cultural, social, political, economic uh, in, in, in all mm -hmm. of those ways. What is one sign of hope in the face of climate change in South Asia? And it's quite a difficult one, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for me, the sources of hope that I find um, in my own work, um, in engagements that I have in Bangladesh, I think that they largely come from social movements that I've had the privilege of working with um, there that are thinking about the organization of space um, and labor and lands in ways that I think are often completely illegible within many of the policy conversations about climate change, even ones mm -hmm. that I think have, that are important and um, would like to see more foregrounded, right? Like, like the conversation about loss and damage. But I think um, what I find hopeful are um, organizations uh, like Nidra Kori, which is an organization I've, I've had the privilege of working with in the past in Bangladesh, it's a, a landless movement um, translates to we do it ourselves um, mm. that are really thinking about questions about empowerment, not from the standpoint of service provision, education about how to think about climate change and environmental change, but rather from the standpoint of rights. So a lot of the work that they do mm -hmm. is very much organized around conscientization. They have this sort of Paolo Freire model um, of, of working with uh, individual landless movements in place. And I think what's hopeful about them is that um, I think they have really transformative effects in people's ability to both speak truth to power um, in mm -hmm. everyday engagements of all sorts of kinds, but also to think about themselves as active agents in shaping future ecologies in the Delta. I think that people who are engaged in these kind of movements are um, absolutely not sitting around and waiting for development organizations or other kinds of um, state interventions mm -hmm. to transform their life, but rather are sort of um, actively jumping in and saying, like, these are the kinds of experiments that we want to uh, undertake, yeah. um, to think about the viability of agriculture, to think about the way that our communities are organized socially. Mm -hmm. And those conversations are not always successful. Um, and in some ways, they are equally as speculative as any other kind of inter intervention trying to deal with climate change in the future um, in the Delta. Uh, but to the extent that they reorganize where decision-making is happening and who is in charge of making those calls, 
um, they give me quite a bit of hope. That's it for today's episode on the next monsoon. Next time, we'll be talking to Asan Kamal on riverine communities and balancing academia and activism in Pakistan. We would like to give special thanks to Sam Lubowitz and Angelica Kramer at Cornell's Language Resource Center for their assistance with recording this podcast. Shivin Senvaratna not only co-hosts this podcast, but is also our editor. Funding for the podcast and the entire Next Monsoon project comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please follow the South Asia program on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SAPCornell. You've been listening to music by SAP Administrator Gloria Lemus chavez and her partner Brandon Kane. Make sure to check out more of their work in the show notes. The ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Cornell's Office of the Vice Provost for International Affairs, or any other official entity of Cornell University. I'm Daniel Bass. And I'm Shavin Sinavratna. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode for new conversations and stories on the next monsoon.